0: Welcome to Reading the Game, the podcast where baseball fans discuss the baseball books they love. And this episode, we're going to be talking about Astro Ball, which is the definitive account of the Houston Astros' unexpected rise to win the 2017 World Series from the Sports Illustrated writer who predicted it three years earlier. Um, I actually spoke to the author of the book, Ben Reiter, um, a couple of weeks ago, and we are going to be... um, having an opportunity to chat to Bill Metzger who writes for the Crawfish Boxes which is an SB Nation site uh, all about the Houston Astros but before we get into the discussion let's go to the audio and uh, the next thing you hear will be my conversation with Ben. We'll come back and have a discussion Hi Ben, Uh, thanks very much for joining us. How are you?
1: Good Steve, thanks for having me on.
0: Uh, no problem. I, I have to say I really like the book and um, there are obvious comparisons to be made with Moneyball, which is not just an incredibly popular and successful book, but one which has transcended the sport and has impacted massively in many industries. We've, we've already discussed uh, Moneyball on our podcast. It was actually our first episode that we ever did. And we kind of all said that what makes Moneyball such a fantastic book is the quality of the storytelling. And I feel like you've really nailed the narrative aspect to that successful rebuilding of the Astros in your book and like even though i observed the astros real build with a fairly keen eye and a fairly keen interest i really like the way how your book uh, has revealed lots that i wasn't aware of and you do a really good job of tying together a number of like quite different narrative strands so kudos i, I really really enjoyed the book um, thank you can you talk a little bit about to get us started um your involvement with the astros and perhaps how the book came about and i'm going to ask you to start with the now infamous sports illustrated cover uh, from 2014
1: Well, the truth is it was never supposed to be a cover. It was just supposed to be a kind of inside the book in sports illustrated story about what was then the worst baseball team in modern history over the three, the previous three years, they posted the worst record for any team since the 1960 early 1960s Mets. So I had the idea to write about why things were so bad down there. Um, What was the plan to improve? Was there any plan to improve? But we figured we're not going to write a story for Sports Illustrated about such a terrible team without some sort of special access to the inside of what they were doing. So that was my proposal to Jeff Luno, who is the general manager of the team, and the Astros. Nothing about a cover, nothing about whether the story is going to be positive or negative. All I said was, why don't you let me come in you know embed with your organization for a period of time a few days better part of a week um, i'll see what you're all about and then I'll, I'll write a story about it to my surprise after several months they said okay and this is something i had been asking baseball teams for a long time as a writer for sports illustrated had always gotten stiff-armed as we say in american football but the astros let me in so i went down to houston in 2014 And I sat in on their pre-draft meetings. I was in this room with their entire front office brain trust as they were discussing who they were going to pick number one overall that year. Sitting next to Nolan Ryan, the Hall of Famer. Craig Biggio is in the room, Hall of Famer. The Nerd Cave, which I would learn a lot more about. Their analytics department was in the room. Jeff Luno is in the room. All their scouts. And it felt less like a baseball team to me at the time and more like a Silicon Valley startup or a private equity shop, uh, except their goal was to make a winning baseball team. You know, this was something entirely new. I could tell right off the bat. Over the course of the next few days, I learned more about what they were doing, explaining how they're leveraging analytics in a new way, folding in human observation and expertise into their analyses to get the best out of both man and machine. Um, And I started believing in it. And I wrote a 5,000-word story for SI explaining why this terrible team wasn't going to be terrible for long. Again, it wasn't supposed to be the cover, but then my editor surprised me. He called me and said, I'm thinking about putting this on the cover because I believe in it too, but tell me one thing. You say it's going to work. When's it going to happen if it's going to work? So I went back to my notes, read through the interviews, thought about it, did some analysis. I said, 2017, You know, if it doesn't work by then, it's going to be a disaster. I believe it will. So the cover of that week's issue, Against the Odds, was uh, your 2017 World Series champs with a picture of George Springer on it. Got a lot of pushback at first, a lot of ridicule for this one. People thought it was outrageous. A funny thing happened. The next year, they got a lot better. 2017, they actually did win the World Series, shocking everybody, myself included. Uh, And then, you know, by that time, I'd spent a lot of time, not just embedded with the organization initially, but cultivating relationships, writing more about them, following their project, getting to know everybody involved. So, you know, I figured I was almost compelled to write a book about how they did it in the most modern of ways. It's such a cool
0: story. I mean, imagine it must have um, been, I don't know, a heavy burden on you as it it got quite close, as it got into that kind of uh, ALCS and then into World Series. I mean, what, what was that like?
1: I was kind of along for the ride, you know. Like Jeff Luno had this thing where he was always incredibly calm, even as the team started getting a lot better, even as they started getting in high pressure games, he would just be calm, almost zen throughout it. Kind of I've done all I can do to build this team, now I'm just gonna let it go and see what happens. His assistant, Sig Maidel, who's another key character in the book, was the opposite. And he's supposed to be the data-minded guy. He'd be flipping out, biting towels, going nuts. But I tried to be more like Jeff Luno. I said, look, I had much less to do with this than Jeff Luno did, which is practically nothing. If anything, I might have spotted something here uh, earlier than most. So, uh, yeah, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, I mean, honestly, they're already so good that the call I made isn't going to seem ridiculous no matter what happens. But uh, then it actually happened. And it's one of those moments in life that seems too good to be true, which... We would subsequently find out, as I'm sure we'll talk about later, Steve. It was in some me- it was in some measures. In some
0: respect, it's such a cool story though. I'm really interested in the mechanics of like how you developed and wrote the book because I-, I think I'm right in saying you had a pretty limited turnaround from agreeing, or uh, well, pre- preparing the initial proposal to then preparing the final edit for publication. How how did you go about researching the book and, like, were you able to fall back on a lot of that initial exposure to the front office that you'd had in
1: 2014? Right. Well, I mean. I kind of mixed motions when this actually happened, when they actually won the World Series in Game 7 over the Dodgers. One was like, wow, this is incredible. This actually happened. Two is kind of like, oh, shit. Can I say that on this podcast? Oh, crap. You say fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap. I have to write a book now. I've never written a book before. And by the way, it's probably going to be a pretty quick turnaround uh, because it's going to have to come out probably next baseball season and books don't move that quickly. Uh, and I was right. I sold the book. I think the week before Thanksgiving, which is late November for your British listeners. And I was supposed to deliver it, I think, in March. So that gave me about four months to write a book, which is a short time, I thought. Um, I had a few things going for me. One, as I said, I had at that point, you know, four plus years of reporting, of relationships of people that I knew who I could call, uh... Uh, the players all knew me at that point, especially because I was so closely associated with this team in the public eye. Um, that was all helpful. I will say that officially the organization, now that it had found success, was actually less inclined to like let me really in as they had been when they were so bad. A dynamic, I guess I understand. But at that point, I kind of knew so much about them and knew so many of the people that it wasn't a real hindrance you know, the hardest part was really sitting down and writing this thing. And in a funny way, I thought a lot about the Astros' own process as I wrote my book. They were all about focusing on process, focusing on what you have to do each and every day over kind of imagining some wonderful future in which you have a ring on your finger or you have a beautiful hardcover book in your hands. Like, you're never going to get there if you don't do the right thing each and every day. So that's how I focused focused on it. I essentially figured I had... I think it was like 12 weeks When I, by the time I was, was actually ready to start writing. Um, I had about 12 chapters, one chapter per week. That's about a long magazine feature. I knew I could write a magazine feature in a week. Broke it down. My goal was to write 1,300 words a day over the course of the winter, which is a lot, but I made it 1,300 words because a colleague of mine had to write a book on a similarly short schedule and told me that his goal was 1,200 words a day. So I thought, okay, I'll go 100 more. And then I'll be ahead of the game. And it wasn't every day that I was able to do this, but at the end of this process, I had a book, and I had a book that uh, I was I was proud of.
0: Yeah, you should be proud of it. Like I said, it's a it's a really it's a really strong piece of um, of narrative nonfiction. I really really enjoyed reading it. So um, yeah, congratulations. I mean, thanks a lot. For me, you've already mentioned Sig. Um, He's like I'm speaking personally. He's like the he's the real star. For me, because I first became aware of him in Sam Walker's excellent uh, book, Fantasyland, uh, when I think Sig was still working with NASA. But he kind of lent a hand to the author as he competed in Tower Wars. Mm-hmm. He was obviously a central figure in the development of the Astros' 2017 success. Can you talk a bit about Sig and, and, how he, and how important he was to Astro Ball?
1: I kind of viewed Astro Ball as having dual protagonists, right? It was Jeff Luno, the general manager of the team, kind of the architect Of the process, Um, and then there was Sig, who was his right-hand man stretching back to their days together with St. Louis. He was at once, he was the data man, so he was at once more left-brained, but also kind of more emotional, right? And he had this great backstory. He worked for, for NASA, as you mentioned. He worked for Lockheed Martin. He was somebody who always loved baseball, but never had a path into the game, when he was younger because there weren't people like him in the game it was all you know former players and jock types and that Moneyball really opened the door for somebody like jeff luno to enter baseball and for sig dell to enter baseball too so i just remember the moment you know when i was in that period of embedding with the astros during the 2014 draft i'd been invited to jeff luno's box during one of the games and Sig was there, and I, I sat down with him. We were supposed to talk for probably 20 minutes. I think we ended up talking for half the game, because he was so engaging, and his so smart, and his views on how to properly use data, as he'd been doing in Houston, to build a winning team were so fascinating. And he had this great backstory, not just NASA, but in college, he'd worked as a blackjack dealer at this crappy casino in Lake Tahoe. Uh, and the behavior of the betters at his table taught him so much about kind of human shortcomings, right? Like inefficiencies of decision-making people who would keep playing blackjack wrong, even though the numbers were the numbers. Uh, He kind of carried that all the way through his life. And those lessons are lessons that are central to the decision-making process. I write about in Astro ball as well.
0: Cool. I mean, one of the things that was one of the things as well, that, for me, was a was a really important event um, in the development of the Astros' success. Was was a failure. Uh, I don't I don't think failure is too strong a word. I mean, the the release of uh, the premature release of JD Martinez like is perhaps the most well known mistake that they made. Uh, I really like the quote uh, Martinez Martinez is attributed to. He says they 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 had all this data, all these nerds and geeks, and I think they forgot that at the end of the day, everybody is still human, and a human can adapt and a human can adjust. Now, I think it's really important because one of the things you talk about in the book a lot is how the Astros were so were so keen to, to mold data analysis with the human element as well. And like, how important was their response to this setback, this failure in shaping what would ultimately be the success of that 2017 uh, team?
1: Failure is absolutely the right word for it, by the way, because they had... J.D. Martinez coming back from a winter away in Venezuela, telling them, guys, I changed my swing. I've been working with this hitting coach. I've been hitting the crap out of the ball down in Venezuela. Just give me a chance here in spring training. I know I'm kind of getting older. I haven't had much success so far. Give me some at-bats to show you what I've done. And they said they would, and then they didn't, and then they cut him. And then, like, a day later, he comes back as a member of the Detroit Tigers and hits three home runs in a spring training game with Jeff Luno in the stands. They're like, oh, man, what did I just do? And what he did was cut outright for nothing the exact type of player that his whole program was designed to find, right? Like a cheap superstar, which JD almost immediately blossomed into for the Tigers and continues to be to this day for the Red Sox. So, yeah, but their approach to this was um, helpful, as far as what would happen in the next three years, right? Like they don't want to overreact to a mistake like this. They never thought that they would be perfect. Their program is designed to make marginally more decisions, correct, correct decisions, I should say, than the competition. But that doesn't mean you get everything right. And this was a big one they got wrong. They would say, you know, if we ever start thinking too highly of ourselves, all we have to do is turn on sports highlights and see J.D. Martinez walloping a couple more home runs. But what they did was they kind of, you know, allowed more room in their analyses for the possibility of people growing and adapting, even at ages at which typical analyses would suggest it's very unlikely. You know, most guys who are 27, 28 don't get better, which is a reason why they cut Genie Martinez when he got to that age. Uh, And they also kind of invested in technology that could help them reveal when this was happening and provide data on it. One of the things was a a device that you can attach to the knob of a bat, right? That will measure the shape of the swing, essentially the vectors, the acceleration of the bat, how it's moving through space. So when a guy comes back and says, look, I've overhauled my swing. It's really working now. They don't have to wait to like give him some at-bats in spring training to see the results. They can actually see it through this analysis um, during every batting practice he takes. So it was a real learning moment uh, for them and a helpful one as devastating as it was
0: Um, cool i want to move on a little bit if it's okay with you to like more more of the present i mean since you've written the since you've written the book the public perception of the astros has altered dramatically like to Mm -hmm. put it mildly obviously the science stealing scandal has been catastrophic for the organization but even before that uh, there was the signing of uh, roberto asuna and like the pr fallout from the way some of the people in the organization talked about that how surprised are you by what's unfolded at the Astros in the last couple of years? And, and has the way that you feel about the organization changed at all?
1: It has. And you're talking to the unwritten chapter of Astro Ball. You're talking about the unwritten chapter that a lot of people uh, have asked when it's coming. And in fact, I'm currently in production on a podcast uh, with a TV series to follow. It's going to dive into this exact question. So without giving too much away, I do want to dive into that a little bit. And I think. You know, for me, the Asuna signing was a turning point as well, as far as how I viewed the Astros program. At least it was the moment when I started to really question what they were doing on a fundamental level. At least part of it, right? You have to remember this trade happened three weeks after Astro Ball was published, right? So like the book was doing great; it was a bestseller, and then they trade for this guy who is a uh, alleged abuser of his partner who's been suspended for 75 games who's a great closer who's 23 years old but no one else in the league will touch except for one team who views him not as a potential criminal but as a uh distressed asset and you know i even went on espn the next day and they're asking me how do you square this and i said i don't think i can like i think it's problematic i think it's morally questionable right um That was the moment when I started to think, you know, like a big part of what the Astros were trying to do is to attain an edge over the competition and every single thing that they could. And that's a lot of what Astro is about, about how they did this. But this suggested that they would go farther than perhaps I had imagined, right? Like they would be more ruthless than I had seen as I was reporting my book. And I think in retrospect, that is the moment that you've smartly identified when perhaps they crossed a line. And it's not that hard to draw a line from this relentless, ruthless pursuit of an edge to the cheating scandal, which is, you know, sign stealing is a really great edge if you want to build a winning team. Now, it gets complicated, right? And this is a lot of the stuff that I'm going to dive into in my projects, because for one thing nobody thinks that the sign stealing scandal is actually initiated by the front office. Like, yes, they were doing some of that stuff their own, but it really was a player driven scheme. And it was something that players had been doing in baseball for like 150 years at that point. Right. Like ever since there was a baseball, there's been sign stealing. Um, But I think it's fair to say that the Astros culture was such in which kind of taking these traditional practices and pushing them to the extreme, weaponizing them, was something that could have trickled down culturally into uh, the clubhouse. And I think it did. So personally, I was very surprised by the specifics of the science stealing. I thought a lot about it. I could have never, I, I looked through all my materials. I can't find any thread that I might've pulled. And been like, oh, if I only had looked into this, I would have revealed the sign stealing thing specifically. I don't think I could have, you know, nobody in baseball seemed to really know about it for two years. Um, not to make excuses for myself, it just wasn't kind of feasible for me to have unveiled that. I would have loved to at the time, right? That would have been an incredible addition to my book, for one thing, in addition to being a great journalistic accomplishment. But I could have, I think, in retrospect, perhaps dug more deeply into the more sinister side of their edge-seeking. And that's the kind of, one of the many things that I'm looking into now, to try to figure out what did I miss? How did I miss it? And what does it mean?
0: And like, without asking you to kind of give up any trade secrets or anything like that, you know, um, like with the TV show and the podcast um, on the horizon, how, in terms of in terms of the mechanics behind acquiring information, like how difficult is it to undertake new research on this topic? Um, given the relationships you already have with people in the organization.
1: Right. Well, again, it's why... Building relationships, you know, building trust as a journalist is so important. It's why it's hard to just kind of parachute into a topic and do and report it. Well, at this point, (laughs) it's not something that I would expect the Astros organization to formally, uh, you know, formally cooperate with necessarily. We'll see. But, you know, I'm not doing PR. I'm doing journalism. And uh that's my goal here. And if they don't cooperate, it'll be fine. We'll get the story anyway.
0: Okay, awesome. Well, I really look forward to uh, to the podcast and the TV show. Like, what, what kind of time frame
1: are we talking on, though? Oh, man, Steve. What kind of time frame <laughs> are we talking about for anything right now? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, look, the, the, the goal, what I can say is the podcast will be out when there is a baseball season next. Right? Awesome. Like, okay. If that's in three months or i don't know longer than that we'll see
0: (laughs) well i i i think we all hope that it's sooner than that but we'll have to be realistic i think um and now something just going back to something that you mentioned already um the the roberto asuna incident happening just literally weeks after the publication of the book and, and and that kind of impacting on on people's impression of the book like what do you think the sign stealing sign stealing scandal does to the legacy of your book? I mean, do you, do you feel like it will be impacted in any way in a, in a historical sense? I'm talking perhaps, you know, five, 10 years in the future. Do you think that people might or have yet to read the book might be put off reading it because of what have happened, what's happened with the organization in the, in the, in the time since it's been published?
1: Sure. (laughs) I, I know that. I mean, judging by some of the Twitter messages, I get this, they already have, uh, I understand that, right? I mean, this is the biggest sports scandal in uh, decades, maybe, since the, at least in baseball since the steroids scandal, right? Sure, like, there's sure. been nothing bigger. I can't remember an off-season which baseball has dominated the headlines every single day, the sport headlines anyway, and sometimes the news headlines, to be honest, um, when there weren't even games being played, right? This is a massive story. It's a story that will never be forgotten, I certainly understand how people say, oh, look, this, the Astros were a fraud through and through, right? They won because they cheated. I would argue it's a lot more complicated than that, you know, and that's what I'm looking into now. How much of their being good was tied to their sign stealing? How much of it was due to their program? I would argue that the latter has a great deal more to do with it than the sign stealing, but the science thing was there, and you can't discount it. And that's one of the things that I'm going to be wrestling with now—not for the sake of my leg, not for the sake of the legacy of my book or anything, but just because, as a journalist, that's what—that's I- kind of what I've made my mission at this point.
0: Okay. Well. Looking to wrap up and, and I promise this is going to be the last question on science dealing <laughs> sure. as, as someone who knows the Astros really well, like where I'm just interested to like to hear your opinion on what they need to do from here going forwards. I mean, they've obviously made significant changes of personnel already. Um, but you've already alluded to the fact that there is quite a deep resentment towards them from across the sport. And like, how long do you think this might hang over them?
1: I think it will hang over them forever. You know, like, I really do, at least anybody who is involved in it. um, I don't think there's anything they can do to make people forget it at this point. I think what one thing they can do, even though they will be the villains of baseball this year and probably going forward, which is in some ways a good thing for baseball, because baseball is looking for that sort of juice and that sort of drama, even though maybe Rob Manfred, the commissioner, wouldn't have exactly designed it in this way. But, you know, I think what they can do is try to win games, right? Like, that was always Jeff Luno's answer as to why all the pain that the organization went through in the early part of the 2010s was worth it. More cynically, that was his answer as to why people would forget about the signing of Roberto Asuna, because if they win, that's the cure-all. I think that that's probably the case here, uh, even with different general manager and different manager.
0: Okay, cool. Now, the last, I mean, last question and then for me is, is about you and your future a little bit. You've already mentioned the TV series and the podcast series, but away from the Astros, do you think there might be a baseball team or a baseball topic that interests you enough to maybe write a book about one day?
1: I think, yeah, I'm sure there could be. You know, like, look, I guess what I'll say is as a journalist for Sports Illustrated uh, in my book, my favorite type of stories are strongly rooted in sports. You know, they're they're real sports stories, but they're more than sports stories, right? Like they tell us something about technology, they tell us something about science, they tell us something about human motivation. Uh, in fact, Astroball has gotten a really big following in like the finance and investing worlds, as those sorts of people are inspired by the Astros program and want to figure out if they can maybe adapt it. Uh, to making money right which I think they probably can uh, those are the type of stories that I look for if it happens to be in baseball I'd certainly be open to it but uh, it really could be anywhere as long as it's meaningful and dramatic and you know tells us something about how the world works right now awesome
0: all right well Ben thanks so much for agreeing to talk to me about the book I've really enjoyed I've really enjoyed chatting to you and um yeah Good luck, with, good luck with the podcast, good luck with the TV series, and good luck with everything going forward from here.
1: Thanks, man. It was fun.
0: Welcome back, guys. Um, just to get started then, um, if I come to you, Bill, can you just give us a brief um, overview of your involvement with the Houston Astros as a fan, and, um, and then talk a little bit about how you, and when you came to the book Astro Ball and what your first impressions were?
2: Well, I'm a Houston Astros fan since the early 1980s. Uh, I've experienced, like most Astros, all Astros fans uh, up until 2017, a great deal of pain and disappointment. Um, and when the Astros finally won the World Series, it's hard to describe the, the elation that, uh, that I felt in uh, all of us Astros fans. Uh, in 2017, I also began writing for the Crawfish Boxes, and uh, I currently am the editor, um, and of course, as a person responsible to uh, uh, to the fan base of, of these Astros, I, I have to keep touch with things. And uh, a book like Astro Ball by uh, Sports Illustrated writer Ben, uh, writer ben Ryder, uh, well, of course, I had to read that. And uh, my reaction to the book, I couldn't put it down. It, it was it was fascinating. It's beautifully well written. It's engaging, and it's intellectually stimulating as well and uh i devoured that book and uh i enjoyed writing the book review for it as well
0: fantastic how about you phil how did you how did you first come to the book
3: uh i was aware of it in the lead up to it hitting shelves in the 2018 summer of 2018 um, i think thanks to amazon's algorithms <laughs> it knew that i like baseball so it was serving serving me up some suggestions which astro Bowl was one uh, but I didn't read it until recently. Um, and normally my method for preparing for these pods, I read the book thoroughly. I scroll notes in the margins as I go, like my, my thoughts and observations, my opinions, like great quotes or great paragraphs, and where I might strongly agree or disagree with something written. But this time I made hardly any notes because I was completely engrossed in the book. Uh, ben Writer can clearly write. He's obviously a great storyteller. Um, And comparisons to Moneyball are fitting, not just in terms of the subject matter, but in terms of the prose style too. There are examples where a writer uh, would do like flash forwards and then flashbacks and uh, use devices and writing techniques in narrative storytelling to keep readers hooked. So I read it in like two sittings and it was an enjoyable read on so many levels, but more so because I only came to read it after, until after the sign-stealing scandal. So I kind of read it like a classic It, like a crime thriller book. I was constantly looking for clues and for red flags and events in the book that would uh, foreshadow the scandal to come. And yeah, I wasn't disappointed. It's a great book.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I mean, I'm the same as you, Phil. I, I can distinctly remember it coming out. Um, and I looked, um, you know, from afar at the Astros' redevelopment, their rebuild. With really keen interest because it was a really exciting, it was a really exciting uh, period in uh, in baseball history. Seeing and come from, come from nowhere to, um, you know, over a period of time to to become the dominant force in baseball. Um, the book, like you, I was aware of it, uh, but I, I I have only come to read it after the after the sign stealing scandal. So again, you know, massively enjoyed this narrative nonfiction and was utterly compelled by the book. I thought it was a real page turner. But uh, but couldn't help but wonder what it might have been like to have experienced it before and after the news of the scandal. I mean, I wonder how much that that kind of that that sign stealing scandal is going to kind of colour our discussion tonight. But I mean, before we before we come on to it, I think it'd be nice if we could have a little talk about of all the people mentioned in the book who we think is cast in the most and the least favourable light because there are some real real strong characters in there. And um, what if we start with you, Bill? Who do you think gets a, a good write-up in the yes. book? A particularly good write-up?
2: Well, obviously, it's uh, the, a rags to riches story for baseball outsiders, Sig Meidl and uh, Jeff Luno. Um, I think that another big hero in the book, and this might also be a big blemish, is uh, Carlos Beltran, who was a negative war-producing player but got a whole chapter Uh I happen to agree that his effect on the chemistry was, was, was substantial. I'd written to that effect, but uh, of course, now we know it's, <laughs> there's a negative side to that. Um, I think the one person, this is a book that's celebrating the Astros. So, so Ben wasn't trying to criticize very much, but I think one person who got a, a bit of a negative rap was, uh, uh, a boat, the, the manager before AJ Hinch, Bo Porter, um, uh, who missed out on on giving uh, J.D. Martinez uh, another chance at proving himself? So I think that's one person who didn't come off too well. Kind of a, portrayed as not not being uh, not being behind the curve a little bit.
0: Not not being uh, what not attuned to the kind of the the, the overtures of, of Astro Ball. The kind of philosophy behind Astro Ball is that what you mean? Yes how about you Phil i mean i i'd have to say i completely agree about about beltran you know it's, mm. um he's a he's a there are recurring examples of his uh, leadership qualities and his um his his the, the influence of his character on 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 other players in the clubhouse so he's someone who comes across as a real strong character was there anyone else in in your mind who um who got a particularly good write up
3: well, I agree with both I agree with both of you. Carlos Beltran is the answer to both of those questions. I mean, he gets the, he's cast in the most favourable light in terms of he was the glue that held the clubhouse together. Uh, you know, he had some uh, boxing WBO belts made up so the Astros players could award player of the match awards immediately after each game, which I thought was quite cute. Um, but then that chapter is full of those red flags that I was talking about earlier that gives the reader a whole different feeling in this new context. That Ben Writer certainly never intended. For example, there's a bit where he writes that during games between the Atbats, Beltran regularly received uh, between the Atbats, Re- Beltran regularly received the Astro's designated hitter. He spent much of his time in the clubhouse consuming video of not just the opposing pitcher and not just of his own swings, but of his teammates' plate appearances as well. And if they developed a bad habit, he saw them and let them know with visual evidence. And they later write so oh, that Beltran began spending long hours in the video room watching at bats for any sign of a floor of an efficiency, and soon his eyes drifted to the pictures. It is, it, it really was like you're reading uh, a classic Who Done It, and that they take that certainly sentences and paragraphs like that take on a completely different context. Reading the book after the science dealing scandal, as opposed to to reading beforehand.
0: Absolutely, I'm going to come to you now, Bill, because I I'd like it if if you could. I'd like you, if you could, to, um, to tell us as someone who follows the Astros really closely, certainly more closely than either Phil or I over the last few years, um, was there anything that particularly surprised you? Did you learn anything new that you didn't already know about the organization?
2: Yes. I think that before that book came out, the feeling was that the Astros were a hundred percent totally about numbers, nothing but numbers, all numbers, money ball squared, um, and there was always a bit of a controversy about that uh, had the Astros taken the human element out and isn't the human element important in, in baseball. And um, even with all that we know about sabermetrics now and um, the uh, the book pointed out that that was the genius of, of Astro Ball, is that they 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 integrated the human element into the into the uh, mathematical analytical calculations. Um, and that, that was, that was the real genius. Uh, I mean, for example, um, when Luno interviewed AJ Hinch, uh, he asked Hinch, are you going to, uh, would you let us uh, make out your lineup? And Hinch gave the wrong answer. He said, no, I'm not gonna let you do that. But it turned out to be the right answer. Mm -hmm. They, they, they wanted a manager that's willing to, uh, uh, understand the circumstances the way Hinch handled pitching during the uh, 2017 playoffs was very intuitive Uh, he didn't do things by the numbers because the ball they were using didn't spin and so he he had to he had to improvise with with how he handled the staff and I think that's a big reason why the Astros won the World Series because he did a better job of handling the pitchers than the Dodgers did
0: that human element is something that is a recurs throughout the whole book. Um, it was something I was definitely surprised about because, like you, Bill, when I when I when the way that the book is marketed and the way the book um, appears from before having read the book is that it's going to be, like you said, you know, a kind of revised or updated um, version of Moneyball, and there are obviously parallels with Moneyball, but and they've both been influential. Um, I don't think, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think people are incorrect to compare it to, to money ball in a lot of respects, but I think one thing that does come through is that, and perhaps this is something just because of Ben's focus in the book, but he really wants to communicate to the reader, the importance of the human. Um, and he, he, he clarifies, uh, with some of the mistakes that they made, some of the failures they made, you know, I'm talking about obviously the situation surrounding JD Martinez, uh, the Brady Aitken thing. So like. It's not completely valedictory in nature. The book. It's not just a. It's not just a celebration of the Astros. It's a real. It really kind of digs deeper into the Astros and, and tries to work out how they became successful and and what it was they did to make them successful. Um, Phil, were you surprised by anything? Uh, I sup. Yeah, I
3: was. I was surprised actually by how sympathetic. I suppose maybe sympathetic is the wrong word, but uh, certainly. Understanding a bit more about the culture that Sig and uh, Jeff created in the, at the club certainly made me empathize. I don't know. I don't know what the right word is, but m- maybe it's just understand a bit more the culture that they created that, that ended up in the sign stealing scandal. Like the writer wrote about Dallas Keuchel, um, who was initially very skeptical of the Nerd Cave, um, but came to grow to love it and embrace it. Um, and it was right a spotlight on Dallas Keiko that really made me understand that culture that Jeff and Sig had created and one that perhaps laid the foundations for what was to come. You know, you're surrounded by advanced analytics and a determination uh, to coach Astros players to success by reducing or eradicating their weaknesses and at the same time exploiting weaknesses in other pl- in, in opposition players. So it was often pretty cutthroat and working in that hyper-analytical high-pressure environment where you can't really hide because of the video replays and the data that so easily can reveal your shortcomings, like whether you've begun holding the bat a couple of millimetres too high and your launch angle has dropped and um, uh, and, you're, and you're hitting into too many double plays or you can't hit fastballs on the outside of the plate. That kind of uh, advanced analysis, all of that information and all of that data, it perhaps isn't surprising that in such a culture it could lead
0: to a team trying maybe a bit too hard and stepping over a line. But then it's really interesting because one of the things that I thought when I, that really struck me reading the book and I, I put, I just picked out a quote from that chapter on the nerd cave, Phil, and just to the people, you know, the only initiated, the people who haven't yet read the book, the nerd cave, how would how's the best way to describe the nerd cave, do you reckon, Bill? Can you?
2: Uh, it, it's, uh, the team of rocket scientists and, uh, physicists and mathematicians and uh, high level science scientists who got together and turned baseball into a science and analyzed all the finest points and turned it into uh, to to numbers and how you could how you could use those numbers to improve improve performances because
0: one of the things that one of one of the things that i think jeff luno comes across as really well for doing in the book is the way that he tries to marry together the science and the data with with that, with the humanity, mm. with with the human element. And I was really interested in some of his backstory, you know, his existentialism in literature course that he did, yeah. you know, doing, a, doing an elective on Albert Camus, you know, it's not the kind mm. of thing that normally brings you into the front office of a high, high, you know, high stakes professional athletic organization, but he really broadened his horizons and he managed to blend cultures. And I thought that was incredibly interesting. That's something that I wasn't really aware of i thought as an outsider that jeff luna was just a successful number cruncher you know it did, but it but it comes across as incredibly more so than that but from that chapter entitled the nerve cave i was really interested there's a quote i just picked out from jeff luna and it said we thought from the beginning we would be the most transparent front office in baseball is there a risk we'd end up giving away company secrets possibly but we felt like having fans feel like they're involved in the process is important and i it struck me obviously in the wake of the science dealing scandal, and all of the stuff that's come out about the Astros since the publication of the book that they obviously felt internally as if they were being transparent. They obviously felt like they, they weren't closing down their doors and they weren't, you know, they weren't, um, not allowing people to come in and, 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 and express themselves within the organization. And perhaps that might've been to their, to their downfall a little bit, you know, um, I'm going to move on. Though I wanted to ask, um, I wanted to ask a question. Actually, and Phil, you touched on this a little bit when you were talking about Carlos Beltran. But in in your opinion, like, do you think there are any elements in the book, any parts of the book, that lead you to think that uh, Ben Wrighter sh- might have or should have been aware of some th- suspicious things happening in the clubhouse? We'll start with you, Bill.
2: Uh You cut out just a little bit. Did you ask me if Ben Ryder should have been uh, suspicious? Yeah, I mean, yeah. If if there's there's anything or or the uh, front office.
0: Well, Ben, the writer, Ben Ryder.
2: Okay, Uh, it's hard to say what he what he got to look at. I mean, it seemed like the cheating was so obvious with with trash cans. Yeah, I really wonder about that. Um, So he should, I, it's easy to look back on it and say, yeah, you should have known they were cheating. Uh, you know, looking back on it from, from, from with hindsight, I, I'm not sure that they were going to let a sports illustrated journalist in on that. Um, they might've been trying to hide it. So, um, I'm going to give Ben the, the benefit of the doubt on that. It's also possible that, um, he wasn't ready to spill the beans. Uh, and I, I, but I don't, I'm not going to go there and say, that's what the fact is. I'm, they they, if they were doing it they didn't want a a journalist to know about it that's for sure
0: yeah absolutely what do you think what's your take phil
3: i agree with Bill. i think we have to trust that writer didn't know and i think i think that kind of came across in your chat with him actually that he that he felt um guilty that maybe he didn't explore some avenues that perhaps he could have done or he didn't maybe push harder um so, yeah, I, I got I got a sense from your chat that, uh, you know, he was he was being very honest and and perhaps there was a little bit of anger um, in him about, about how, how how things have progressed and which I'll no doubt address in the, the podcast. <laughs> that he's I, doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the thing from talking to him. I got the impression that I got the impression that were he to have experienced or seen things that led him to believe that they were cheating, that. The journalist in him would have been far more interested in bringing that to, to the to the yeah. public than um than than the book itself so i don't know i'm I, like you guys i think i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt i suspect that um i suspect that they were trying very hard to, to conceal things to to outsiders in, in 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 the organization so i can completely believe that he could have been completely oblivious to what was going on and um and even even having formed some good close relationships with people within the organisation, but yeah, like you, Phil, I think it's going to be incredibly interesting to see his podcast coming out and the television series that's subsequent to that. So yeah, I'm I really, can't wait. Re- really looking forward to that. Um, if we keep on the subject of the science stealing, like, do you think? Um, do you think? And talking about Ben Wright, obviously talking about the book, and perhaps f- uh, Phil and I are a better place to answer this than you, Bill, because we came to the book after having had the uh, exposure to the science stealing scandal. But do you think that the, sa- the scandals surrounding the Astros since the book's publication will have an impact on the legacy of the book? Do you think that it will affect the way that people look at the book uh, in 10, 15, 20 years down the line?
2: Oh, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, whether he meant to or not, Ben missed uh, a big story so yeah the the legacy is uh is going to be hurt J- just like the legacy of the astros is going to be hurt uh you know th- this was a very celebratory book about it, uh a great cinderella story and it turns out they were cheaters so um uh, yeah it's going to hurt the legacy of the book
0: but do you, do you think the same thing phil
2: yeah sadly
3: um but people should read it nonetheless like sales of yes. the curse of the bambino no doubt Wayne since the Sox ended broke the curse in 2004 but uh people should still read it nonetheless it's still a great book and and this one is too what about I, you steve do you think well, you...
0: i think yeah I, I well i think weirdly um I, but I, i'm coming to the book as someone who particularly likes reading about um inside organizations you know that the book mm. you know it, it is i'm comparing it to moneyball again you know it's the lazy thing to do but i think it's apt like, I, th- I still think it's an incredibly interesting insight into a front office, into an organization, with or without the knowledge that things were going on that you know, the Astros shouldn't have been doing. In fact, I think weirdly, there's a chance that it could go, it could be like a time capsule, it could be seen as like a historic monument, you know, it could be kind of seen in a really interesting uh, historical context. Um, reading the book back in 15 or 20 years time especially as i'm absolutely convinced that there's going to be more to come out on the science dealing and on on the, on the, on the organisation in the in the coming months and years so i don't know i think i think the book may suffer in some audiences but i think that there's still going to be enough people who are interested in it uh, to see it as an as a book that they're going to want to read in the future so I wouldn't be too worried if I was Ben Wright. I mean, he's already he's, he's, he's written a fantastic book, and I think it will continue to sell into the future. If not, perhaps as much as it would have done uh, otherwise. Yeah, there's still a lot
3: of great content in there that that shows you how the Astros uh, completely rebuilt. And it's yeah, they didn't win the World Series in 2017 just on sign stealing. There was a lot of other you know clever picks and drafts, and um, there's definitely a lot of lessons
0: and things. And also, I mean, there it's not it's not the only it's not the only book to, to delve or dive into the Astros um, that, that didn't you know didn't pick things up. I mean, I'm thinking of Ben Lindbergh and Travis sorcik's book, The MVP Machine. You know, I don't know whether if the timeframes completely match up, but you know, it's difficult to come in as an outsider and get complete. You know, full access, all areas to an organization to be able to go in and look at things. So, I certainly don't hold it against—I don't hold it against the author uh, for missing out on things. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how it made you feel about the players. You know, did it? Did it? We've talked a little bit about Carlos Beltran. We've talked a little bit about AJ Hinch. We've talked about Jeff Luna. Like, are there any of the of the players that changed your opinion of them? Uh, it certainly made me think uh, a little bit more about um, about George Springer. You know his backstory. I thought was particularly interesting. Did either of you did either of you learn anything about the players or change the way that you felt about players from the information about them in the book? Uh, you go, I have. You go, uh, sorry, you go, uh, Bill. You go, Bill.
2: I had already written a very long article about the, what I called the core four, obviously not a new, new, new name. Um, and so there wasn't any information in the book that I didn't know, but I think that this core of Astros players have, have, uh, let's just say any one of this group of four would be considered amazing team leaders on any other team with great stories, with great, um, uh, backgrounds that and, and and difficulties that they had to overcome i mean bregman is not a natural athlete what he is is what he made himself by the most incredible uh, sheer effort uh, from from the time he was four or five years old he was just a baseball machine he you couldn't stop him he still is that's why they drafted him uh springer we know his story about stuttering we know how you know what he had to overcome they called him the midget when he played in venezuela uh, and, and uh, of course, Correa came from terrible poverty. I mean, he cared about being a great baseball player so much that he told his dad, hit me ground balls underneath the, 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 the tree with roots because he wanted to be, get used to hitting uh, fielding grounders. And he'd come to school with black and blue marks all over his face and, his, and, the, and people were afraid his parents were beating him. Um, so these are v- incredibly driven people. And um, have great stories and great leadership. Uh, and uh, it's sad to me that uh, their reputations have to, had to be smeared by, by the, the scandal because I think they're an amazing group. And I really hope they re-sign Springer. And that's the heart and soul and the spirit of the team.
0: Mm. Bill, you, Bill uh, before I come to you, Phil, sorry, I just want to elaborate or get Bill to elaborate on this because it, it seems timely. Like You're obviously someone who knows the Astros really well. Uh, where where, did, where does the organization go from here? I know they've obviously made some some root and branch changes within and, and the front office and, and, and on the field. You know with the, with the management there. But how deep do you think the resentment towards the organization is, and and, and where where are they going to go? If not in 2020, if we, then in perhaps into the future, into 2021 and beyond.
2: 2020, they're if, if we ever get back to playing, they're 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 well set. 21, they're going to lose. Uh, they're going to lose Springer uh, if they don't re-sign him. Uh, there's a couple others uh, after 22. They're going to lose Correa, Verlander, uh, Gar- uh, not Garrett Cole, uh, uh, Grinky, uh, Guriel, uh, and they really haven't, in my opinion, drafted that well in the last few years. They have traded away a lot of their their farm system to get people like Cole and, and Grinky um verlander they lost their first and second round draft picks because of the luno scandal in the upcoming years uh i'm a little pessimistic on the other hand i think jim crane the owner deserves a great deal of credit for having hired luno in the first place that was a revolutionary idea i mean what was luno he's just a scouting director and uh I think he made an amazingly good pick in in James Click from the Tampa Bay Rays. I think the Tampa Bay Rays might be the the real best front office in baseball right now. How well they do on their payroll is amazing. And so I think that Click can bring what they know in the Tampa Bay's, the the Rays organization, and uh, integrate it with what they know in the Astros uh, 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 organization, and hopefully come up with another kind of Astro ball. That's a, that's hopeful, but but uh, it could be.
0: And what about what about externally, Bill? What about the resentment from 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 the rest of the baseball fraternity towards the Astros? How do you feel about that uh, as an as a fan?
2: It's it's going to be there. It's going to be intense, and it's going to last. I think as long as these current players are on the Astros, I, I heard Ben say it's going to go on forever, and to some extent, it will. But I think that uh at least as long as these players, Springer, Correa, Bregman, Bregman's a polarizing figure anyway. Um, I, I'm sad that Altuve gets lumped in with this. Uh, he's he's a very good man, but um uh so it's gonna go on for a while and eventually people will forget. Ten years maybe.
0: And you mentioned you mm. used, you you literally just used the word sad, Bill. I mean, is there how do, how does it make you feel
2: as a as a fan? Um, I think that, uh, the Astros got caught up in a, in a culture and, um, that no one quite knew how to stand up to the pr- peer pressure that was going on within the, the clubhouse, uh, Altuve and Josh Reddick stood up to it, but only in an individual sense. We won't do it, but no one stood up to it and said, it's wrong. Uh, A.J. Hinch didn't even feel like he had the power to do that. Um, so, and I think that under the circumstances, I don't think the Astros were really any different than than most other teams, most other clubhouses. Um, I think that the, let's get back to Beltron. He brought it in, and I think, and 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 it, talking about the writer's description of Beltron he had become such an important player a per- important person in that clubhouse that it was very difficult once he said let's do this for these younger players to say well i don't know about that and i also think that how that given how important beltron was to the chemistry of the team that might have been the reason why hinch was so tentative about trying to stop it because then he has to come into conflict with Beltran and he's in the clubhouse. That's just speculation on my part, but I, that's, that's my theory uh, on that.
0: It's really interesting to hear you say that, uh, Bill. It's really interesting to hear your take. Um, it's interesting that um, just to pick up on something
3: that Bill just said that uh, from the science, the, the science stealing scandal, the aftermath that there was one person also in the Astros organization who Um, Was at the centre of everything, and I don't think they got a single mention in the book. And that's Alex Cora. I was wondering what, why, what, if he was so influential in the Astros clubhouse, why he didn't appear at all in the book. I have no idea.
0: Well, he uh, he, he was he was mentioned. He was mentioned, but he he? he, yeah he was mentioned, but it. But it wasn't. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't elaborated. He didn't get a chapter. He didn't get. You know. Didn't get significant exposure. Mm. Um, but then again, none. I'm none not of, finding him. No.
2: I'm not finding him in the uh, in the index. <laughs> so he wasn't mentioned much.
0: Oh mm. right. Well, that is interesting. Yeah, especially uh, especially in light of what's um, what's happened since the book's publication, for sure.
2: Yeah, I think that one of the big worst exclusions in the book was not mentioning uh, Brent Strom, the pitching coach. And I mentioned that in my book review that uh, the the transformation of of pitchers before and after the Astros is is remarkable, including Verlander, who wasn't really that good when we got when we got him the years before. Garrett Cole, uh, Charlie Morton. Go on and on and on. Other guys that just came off the scrap heap and became uh, legitimate pitchers. Um, Brent Strom deserved a a, a lot more mention in the book, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, they talked a little bit about pitch selection, didn't they? And analysis of pitch usage. But uh, it's particularly in reference, I think, to Colin McHugh. But but you're right. There was a little bit of... um, that's a little bit of an aberration, isn't it? Not to have d- dived a little bit more deeply into what it was that they're actually doing uh, technically as well as just theoretically because I think that that's really interesting. And I think that's one of the things that the MVP machine does incredibly successfully as well. You, you know, looking at a book which analyzes their success, I think that's really interesting uh, that, that, that Ben Lindbergh and Travis Sorchik really picked up on some of the stuff that they were doing mechanically uh, as well as just theoretically. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. I'm thinking about wrapping up. I don't, I don't know if there's anything else uh, anyone particularly wanted to mention. I mean, for me, there was just one thing that I really wanted to throw in because with all the parallels that we're making with Moneyball, I thought it was incredibly interesting. Um, there's a little tidbit in there when, uh, when Jeff and Sig are trying to sell the idea of drafting Jed Lowry when they're on the Cardinals scouting team, despite him not looking the part. And it really reminded me of the scene in Moneyball where uh, Billy Bean says, perhaps apocryphally, when he says that we're not selling jeans. Mm. And, uh, and, I, and, I thought, and I thought that was incredibly ironic, given that, that one of Jeff Lunau's previous jobs was actually using market data to try and sell more jeans for a jeans company. So I just thought there was a nice, a really nice little thing there. And I couldn't help chuckling to myself as I read that. And I've sort of pieced together all of those little threads. I thought it was incredibly funny. Um, I don't know yeah. if anyone's got anything else they wanted to add. I'm good. Phil, so, did you have anything you wanted to uh, to, to mention with no, my? I I'm, go, just, I'm just looking
3: at the notes that I made. Uh, what did I say? Uh, oh, I said I, said, I, I thought that the one thing that the book is going to do in terms of making me how it's going to change the way I watch baseball was that uh, when baseball starts again, I'm definitely going to look. Uh, for you, Darvish when he next pitches, and see if I can start see if I can start seeing his mechanics whether he's tipping pitches or not um, but yeah I can't, I can't really think of any other way that the book is going to make me change the way I watch baseball, but yeah definitely focusing on you, Darvish and how he's holding the ball in his hand um, is definitely something that I've got to look back on.
0: I tell you what, though, in terms of influencing the way you think about the sport, like one of the things that the book's been um, celebrated for from people outside of the baseball community is how influential it can be in in a, in, in in the sort of spheres of management and, mm. and areas like that. And it has been very successful in different industries by le- by leaders of different industries because um, you know they're they're anxious to take any any information and gain any sign of inside knowledge um, and apply it to their own industries and their own sectors. But I have to say, like I did think it was incredibly interesting getting that insight into an organization i i i you don't get that from from very many books and i thought it was uh really nice to see the the human element being being really emphasized in the book um so yeah i have to say that was one thing for me that i really liked
3: yeah i completely i completely agree and i'm going to make a comparison to money again but uh i i the one observation that i took from the book towards the beginning was that Actually, it gave traditional scouts a lot more credit than Moneyball did, and it really humanized scouts. Uh, they're not all dinosaurs, and actually, many scouts embraced the nerd cave and the analytics in general. For example, helping scouts realize, um, based on a re- regression analysis, if their grades reveal tendencies to over or underrate a certain type of player or, or a certain attribute. Um, so, yeah, they're not—they're not—they're not quite the dinosaurs that uh, Michael Lewis had me believe, perhaps. Mm-hmm.
2: Even Luno himself overrode analytics when he, when he picked uh, uh, Joe Kelly when he was with the Cardinals. Mm. When he overrode his he overrode on that, and you know it was scouting that that tipped the balance on 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 Carlos Correa, uh, as I recall from the book. So yeah, yeah, I agree with that.
0: And then you know, just lastly, to say you know that I was talking about. How you can be influential, but I think the, the, the key thing to remember here is that, um, and this is in the context of the sign stealing scandal, is, is how important um, individuals are within organizations. You know, there's how how influential people can be from within organizations. Obviously, we're talking about Carlos Beltran and various other people on the podcast tonight, but you know, you can have you can have this idea of a baseball front office as being, especially in this sabermetric uh, post-sabermetric revolution era you know, you have this view of them being number crunching machines and, and very faceless, but actually it's the humans that really, mm. really make or break an organization, make or break a run. Um, and, and it kind of reminded me a little bit um, while we're making comparisons uh, of Barry's Faluga's The Grind, because it that was a book that really, really emphasized the importance of individuals and human personalities within organizations. And then there's a beautiful parallel with The Grind, of course, because, Team and the organisation that that's detailing has just been successful last last uh, last autumn in the World Series. So, I don't know. It kind of for me, it kind of married together a lot of thoughts that I'd had in my head, kind of floating around, and it, it worked really well as a kind of melting pot of um, of my thinking about the sport. And and so from that point of view, perhaps it has had an influence on me in the way that I think about the game of baseball. Even if really annoyingly, since I read the book, I haven't actually been able to watch any Major League Baseball. Because <laughs> of the situation. But I'm sure when it comes back. It'll still be at the forefront of my mind, but at least I hope it will anyway. Um, I can't believe
3: we t- it took that long for somebody to mention the coronavirus. Yeah,
0: sorry. <laughs> I thought I'd leave it. I thought I'd leave it till the last <laughs> two minutes to mention the coronavirus. Uh, listen, thanks very much, um, very much, uh, B- uh, Bill, for joining us. Um, my from pleasure. In Texas, it's been great having you um, share your wealth of um, information and insight into the Astros organization. It's something that Phil and I just do not have at all that kind of inside expertise on the organization. So it's great to hear your ideas and your thoughts. Thanks very much for joining us. You mentioned, and I've mentioned as well, the the crawfish boxes. Is there something that you wanted to tell listeners about? Is there somewhere that, you know, you can be reached on social media or something that you want to urge people to go and do when they're listening to this, if they want to get more information about the Astros and what you do?
2: Well, we we're at uh, crawfishboxes.com and we have a crawfish boxes, Twitter feed, um, I'm not that active on Twitter personally, Uh, but uh, when the games start going, we're going to be really active. I've got uh, a three-part series posted there right now about Jeff Luno Luno revisited. And um, partly because you asked me to do this podcast, I wanted to do some thinking about that. Uh, I had um, concluded that uh, the drafting really was overrated. The trading was not that great either, but player development and um, player development to me seemed to be the secret. They, they got the most out of, of the players they had. They, they took a lot of free agents and made them better, especially in the pitching department. But anyway, uh, so yeah, crawfish boxes. Okay. That's where we are.
0: Fantastic. All right.
2: Okay. Well, Do you want to know why we're called that? Yeah. That's I bet the, you don't know. The, it's in the stadium, right? The, um, the... <laughs> it's the, uh, not the crawfish the
0: the the crawford boxes
2: crawford boxes
0: yeah
2: okay the the stadium was built on crawford street and those that little left field uh box section is called the crawford boxes and so crawfish are local uh crustaceans that come out of the ground yeah and uh, them, in louisiana we- especially but Go ahead. We
0: call them. We call them crayfish. What do y'all call them? We call them crayfish. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because there was this. There was this really interesting. Up, it, thing that up came in out the northern. With um, with George W. Yeah, Bush but... talking about crawfish, and nobody, nobody in the UK what that knew, knew, knew what they were. This was about. This <laughs> yeah. is. This, was, yeah. this must have been his presidency. So it's going back about 15 years, but I, since then I've known what crawfish were. So it's quite interesting. Yeah. Go on. I, yeah. I interrupted you. Anyway, go on. My
2: uh, up up north, uh, in the northern part of the United States, that, that's what they're called, crayfish. And my family lives in Massachusetts, and I actually had an argument with uh, one of my family members who insisted that the only proper name for this uh, creature is crayfish. And I said, well, you know, they grow in, in Louisiana and Texas, and back down there, we, we call them crawfish. <laughs> we actually had an argument about it, but uh, that's where we get the crawfish boxes. It's And they're really popular this time of year. This is when they're out. They grow in the rice paddies, actually, and it's... Uh, we love to have crawfish boils here in, in Texas.
0: Yeah, we get them in Suffolk in England on the East Coast. Cro- uh, crawfish tails, absolutely delicious. So,
2: mm. yeah. Yes, indeed.
0: Um, you're making me hungry. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll leave it there. Listen, thanks very much, everybody, for coming on. It was great chat. I really enjoyed. Yeah, it was good Perhaps chat. we should just say we really enjoyed the book as well. And, um, yeah, like, mm. thanks for listening. Cheers. Thank
2: y'all. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.